And what I want to do today is I want us to, you know, we looked at the micro, looking at individual characters and looking at um, what God did in some sometimes very small circumstances. We looked at kind of the micro. What I want us to do today is kind of look back over the book of Genesis as a whole and try to try to discern what is God saying in the macro level. What's the big picture of the book of Genesis? And we're going to do that kind of in two ways. First of all, I'm just going to make one observation about the entire book. And just one, if you look at the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis really has, has um, one main message that it teaches. It says all kinds of things, but one really important message that it, that it teaches. We're going to look at that first. And then we're going to look at the six main characters of the book of Genesis. Now, if you look at all the book of Genesis, it really only deals with six main people. And it just kind of goes through the life of six people. Well, after it gets through creation. And we're going to look at those six people as a, on, a, on, a, on a big view and kind of say what's one thing that they, each of them would say to us. And I think as we do this, it's going to help us to discern what things God had to say to us or has to say to us as we wrap up Genesis that can help to shape us. Because understand something, what we're doing, what I'm doing right now is not for entertainment value. I hope it's enjoyable. But we don't stand up here on Sunday and this isn't about entertainment. This is about the opportunity for the Spirit of God to shape us through His Word. Matter of fact, it says our minds are renewed by what? The washing of the, the Word. That God uses His Word. It's not, this isn't just a book. This isn't on par with the Quran. This isn't on par with, you know, the, with Shakespearean writing. This is, this is way up here and those are somewhere so far below we can't do it. This is God's Word to us. And God gave it to us for a reason, to, to shape us, to make us become different than we are today. And so when we interact with the Word of God, as we look at this big picture, what I want it to do is to grab a hold of our hearts and to, and to kind of mold us into somebody different. Sometimes it's a molding of how we look at life. And that's what I'm hoping you're going to see, especially in the big part, in the, big, the first point, looking at just the whole book of Genesis. It's kind of a molding of, of our confidence of walking with God um, through this life of being, his, of being His children. And so then we'll look at some individual things, um, but still on a macro level, um, that will help us to be, to be challenged and shaped. And if we have that happen today, we've come together for a good thing. The Spirit of the Lord has accomplished in us what He wants to accomplish. And so first of all, let's look at this one overriding observation from the book of Genesis. And I just sum up my one observation from the book of Genesis in one statement, and it's this. It says that God is supreme, and that He has an eternal plan, and He is working out His eternal plan. The book of Genesis really teaches a story. It's really a storybook. And it, and it tells this one basic um, overriding story. God is supreme. He starts off as, in the beginning, God. And He just says He's there. And that he, as a supreme God, has an eternal plan. That he's looking to eternity. That in what he's doing way back here in the beginning is all looking to the end game. And that he is working out that plan from the very beginning and he's still working it out today. That God is supreme. And he has an eternal plan and he is working out his plan. Think of the book of Genesis. From the very beginning of Genesis where we read about the account of creation all the way to the end of Genesis, which is the story of of Joseph becoming number two in Egypt, what we see over and over and over are little snapshots of how God works in the affairs of men. And in essence, his fingerprints are all throughout the entire book of of Genesis. If you look at it, what you really see is the the reality, the, the evidence, the fingerprints of God from the first verse all the way to the very last verse. We understand that God is working out his plan. 
Think of it. Nothing that happens in Genesis just happens by chance. What we see in the book is that God has this plan from the beginning and he's working it out from the very beginning all the way to the end. You know, it was, it was God who chose to form Adam and Eve. It says God did it. It didn't say they just evolved from monkeys. It says God did it. And when God couldn't find the suitable help meet for, for Adam, God put Adam to sleep and created Eve from him and called him woman, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. God was the one who had the idea. It was God who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, and it was God who disciplined them and cast them out of the garden when they chose to reject his ways. It was God who years later then looked at a world that was, uh, was completely messed up by sin and selected one man named Noah. And he called Noah, and he said, Noah, build a boat. And God was the one who caused the animals to come into the ark. And it was God who caused the flood, and God who caused it to recede. Sometimes we don't like to admit that, that it was God who caused the flood. But God's the one who did it. God had a plan the whole time. Before the rain ever started, God way back here said, um, I'm going to pick a man, he's going to build a boat. I'm going to rescue humanity through it. God had a, had a plan. It was God who, who looked on the entire face of the earth years later and selected one guy named Abram, who later changed his name to Abraham. And he said, I'm going to choose you, and I'm going to choose you to become the father of a nation. A nation that, friends, still exists today, the nation of Israel. You know, as a nation, we're only a little over 200 years old, and we feel like we're old. Way back then, God said, i got a plan on how I'm going to reveal myself to mankind. And he selected this guy named Abraham, and he said, I'm going to make you the father of a nation. And that nation will be used by God himself to bring the, the revelation of who God is, and even more importantly, the revelation of who the Messiah was, that Jesus would come, the Messiah, the one slain from the foundation of the world, the plan that was way back then. He said, I'm going to pick this man to be the guy through whom that nation will be raised and through whom the Messiah will come. Down the road later, it was God who provided a ram in the bush so that Abraham didn't have to sacrifice Isaac because Isaac was the child of promise. Isaac was the boy born to, to Abraham when he was 100 years old. And God said, you know what? Um, if you've got to sacrifice him, the plan can't go on. The family will die. And when Abraham went to sacrifice the ram on the mountaintop, God provided a ram. It was God who did that. It was God who said, go ahead to the mountaintop. And God who knew that the ram would be in the bush. You know, it was, it was God who later changed Jacob from Jacob the deceiver into Israel, the one who wrestles with God. It was God who brought the change. It was God who, who had a wrestling match with him that day at the, at the river and changed the man from that day forward. And he walked with a limp the rest of his life to remind him that he had an encounter with God. It was God who did that. It was God who took Joseph and had him sold into slavery cast into prison later and then brought him to number two position in Egypt for one reason to preserve the family line because he knew that someday a famine was going to come on the land and the only way it was going to work was for them to have food in Egypt you know as we look at this whole book of Genesis it shows us that God is truly in control of this world and that God is truly in control of the affairs of mankind God has a plan friends he has a plan, and He is working it out. And even where we live today, God has a plan, and He's working it out. And understand this, neither sinful man nor demonic forces can derail the plan of God. Sometimes if you're like me, you watch Fox News, and you see all the, the mess in the world, and you go, God, where are you in this thing? And this thing's going to, you know, to, those things, to hell in a handbasket. 
you're saying it can't happen, God, and all oh, the, the radical Muslims are going to rise up and do that, or this group's going to do that. And you say, you say, guess what? I look at Genesis and I see something. God's got a plan. God has a plan, and sinful man and demonic forces will not derail the plan of God. That God is making it work in His timing and in His way. He had the plan way back then. And we go through stage after stage after stage in the book of Genesis and we see God always knew what He was doing. Man didn't understand in the process. Man scratched their head and said, I'm a hundred years old, God. I don't have a son. How can, I have, how can this work if I'm Abraham? And God says, i got a plan. Joseph gets thrown into prison. He's got a dream. Someday my family's going to bow before me. And when he's sitting there shackled in a prison, he's saying, God, it's, the dream was this is going to come to pass. God had a plan. Friends, that's what the book of Genesis the whole teaches. That God has a plan. And I don't know about you, but I hope for you this is true. That It's the, probably the most comforting message that could come out of the book of Genesis. The fact that God is in control and God has a plan. Guess what? God has a plan for Egypt today. God has a plan for Syria today. God has a plan for Libya today. God knew who the ruler was going to be. God knew what was going to happen. God has a plan for Japan. If you're all freaked out thinking radiation is going to get you, guess what? God's got a plan. Don't be freaked out. Don't lose any sleep. God has a plan. God has a plan for Israel. And all this mess going on right now, I don't know if you heard through the details, but that Israel's lobbing, getting shells lobbed at them right now, and they're having airstrikes back in Palestine. God's got a plan. He knows what he's doing. You know what? God's got a plan for Wisconsin. God wasn't surprised by a whole bunch of people protesting in our, in our nation's capital. God wasn't surprised by it. He has a plan, and he's working it out. And you know what? God has a plan for you. You say, I don't matter. Yes, you do. God's got a plan. You may simply be the cupbearer who gets tossed in the jail for no problem of your own, you did nothing wrong, and a little while later, you're brought up to another position just so you can be the one who says to Pharaoh, guess what? There's a guy, a Hebrew child back in prison who interpreted my dream. You don't understand what part you play in the plan oftentimes. I don't understand what part I play in the plan. But every person in the plan is important. Everyone just as important as the other one. There are no superstars with God. God's got a plan. And he works it out. If we will walk in conjunction with God, he works it out. This world isn't out of control, friends. God is supreme. And he has an eternal plan that he is working out. Amen? Amen? When you step back, you look at Genesis, you step back and you look at it. That's the big picture. That's the macro of the book of Genesis. God really knows what he's doing. And I tell you what, I'm comforted by that. Because every time I can't figure it out, I just say, wait a minute. God's supreme. He has a plan. And he's working it out. And I don't always have to know what's going on. Matter of fact, I would say this. I never know what's going on. And Suzanne says, Amen. You know, you know. I never know what's going on. But you know what? You may think you know what's going on. You really don't. You may think you've got it all planned out. You really don't. God's got a plan. And sometimes you're just a cupbearer. And you get tossed in the prison just so you can be there to interact with the, with the uh, Joseph of the day. And send him on, on his way. I was talking to the head of Teen Challenge last time they were here. By the way, they're coming here the beginning of May again. Teen Challenge, our month of missions emphasis for the month of May. And uh, the leader of Teen Challenge ministry was telling me about when, when George Bush was running the first time, thinking about running for president, and how one of the key people who convinced him to run was a drug addict from Teen Challenge 
who he was speaking at a, at a place, he was speaking in Wisconsin when he was Governor Bush. And a, and a drug addict, convert, converted, restored drug addict, said, I have a message for George Bush. And they let him go talk to George Bush. And he said, God wants you to run for president. And he ran for president. And he says one of the convincing factors was this guy, converted drug addict, from some mission ministry that, that, that George Bush had just begun to find out about. And, and he used some guy who had been through drugs and rehab, rehabilitation to talk to him to convince him to do what he did. Now, I'm like, I don't care if you liked George Bush or not. That's not the point. The point was this. That guy was just a cupbearer. And God had a plan for him. And friends, God has a plan for you. Sometimes we don't know what the plan is. I'd say most of the time we don't know what part we play in the plan. But you know what? It pays for you to get, get out of bed this morning. It pays for you to stay connected to God this morning because God wants to use you in His plan. And that is comforting to me. That's the macro of the book of Genesis. It fires me up to say today matters because today I just might be part of an eternal plan that God has for somebody else. That's a, that's a great reason to get out of bed in the morning. Now that's the, the big, big macro, but let's kind of narrow our focus a little bit. And we're going to spend, and I'm going to say this, we're going to spend a moment. Because matter of fact, if we spent more than a moment on each one of these next points, we'll be here till supper time. And so I don't think you want to do that. Scott, you're the only one who says you don't care. Okay? <laughs> you're the only one. <laughs> um, and so we're going to spend a moment looking a little macro, a macro still, but a little narrower focus on the six main characters of Genesis. And kind of do the same thing with them. And listen to what I believe each one of them would say to us from their life if they could give us just one statement each about what they want us to learn from their life in the book of Genesis. So we see the one big comment, God's supreme, he's in control, he's got a plan, he's working it out. Now these people are all part of the plan. And as part of the plan, what's interesting is they're all going to have something different to say to us. They don't all say the same thing. Matter of fact, they all say things completely different to us. And so if we want to understand the whole book of Genesis and let it shape us, I think we really got to understand what six comments we would hear to help shape us completely from this macro look at the book of Genesis. So let's begin by starting in the beginning. And we're going to use these two as one. When I say six, there's really seven because the first one is a pair, and it's Adam and Eve. They start at the very beginning with Adam and Eve, and we, as we look at Adam and Eve, we think about them, and we ask them today, if we sit them down right here, I wish I could do this. I was actually toying with, with having a bunch of people come up here and dress in character and have Adam and Eve sitting here and you know the rest and say, what would you say to us? But I want you to imagine in your mind this morning, Adam and Eve are here today. What would they say to you and me if we said, tell us one statement, I think they'd give us two words. These would be the two words from Adam and Eve. Sin costs. Sin costs, or sin is costly. Think about this. You maybe never thought of this before. Maybe more than any other human beings in history, these two experienced the reality of the high price of sin in a greater degree, in a more stark reality than anybody else ever has on the face of the earth because of the situation they started at with no sin. Just think what they understand that sin costs them and sin costs you and me. We don't necessarily see it the same way because we don't know the other side of the equation. They lived in the condition with God before any sin. And so when they sinned and they paid the consequences, they had a huge before and after. And they would say, listen, friends, sin costs. They would say, you know what? Sin costs them a relationship with God. They went from talking with God in the cool of the day to hiding in the forest, saying, God... Don't look at me. Sin costs them a relationship with God. 
Sin cost them life in the garden. Do you understand what life in the garden must have been like? The opposite is what we have today. The opposite says this, that now when they were kicked out of the garden, that they would only eke out an existence by the sweat of their brow. That the ground would produce thorns and thistles. And it would be unproductive. Friends, you know what? We don't have a grasp on that because we live in the wealthiest nation in the world during the time of the greatest wealth in the history of humanity is the last generation we came through. But you know, you travel this world, almost everybody on the planet just ekes out an existence. That's it. They just get by from day to day. They just barely have enough to make it and some don't even have enough to make it. What God prophesied way back then when he kicked them out of the garden, from this garden where they really didn't have to do anything but tend the garden. And it was lush and designed just to support human life. And it went from that to living in a world where they lost it all. And now they're going to basically just eke out an existence. Sin costs them more than that, though. Sin costs them life itself. The Lord had said, the day you eat, the day you will die. Or that you, as, as a result, later down the road, you will die. Adam and Eve faced death. They could have lived eternally. Eating from the, eating from the, uh, the tree of life in the garden. But instead, they faced death. Sin cost them the pure, loving relationship that they had with one another. You know, you may think, well, may I do a to- well, maybe I shouldn't do a poll. I was going to do a poll. How many would say, I have true love? I could say that. I have found true love with my wife. She's the greatest wife on the planet. I have found true love with my wife. 22 years this summer of wedded bliss with never an argument. That's a lie. (laughs) Um, But we have a great marriage. But guess what? As great as I may think that is, and as great as some of you may think you have it, not one of us have ever experienced a true unhindered relationship. The kind of relationship that Adam and Eve had before sin entered the equation. Not one of us has. That sin entered in and it changed it all. And now we've got to try to get along. It's effort. A lot of effort. It is. Because of sin. Adam and Eve, they had that, they had that thing before, before sin where they lived in such harmony without the sin's effects in their lives that they just had the perfect relationship. And they lost it all. After sin, they blame each other. It's your fault. You know what? Not only that, sin cost them something else much dearer. Sin cost them their son. They have two sons. And they go through not only the loss of a son, but they go through the murder of a son. And not only the murder of a son, but the murder of a son by their other son. You talk about sin costing. You get out of bed in the morning. I can't imagine what my friend, the Roths, Rosses, feel like right now with finding out their son died in Afghanistan. But these people understood that not only their son died, but their son died because their other brother killed them. Sin cost. These two got it. They understood that sin cost. They lived in perfection at first, and they threw it all away by sinning. They knew sin's cost. And friends, I think that if Adam and Eve could talk with us today, they would say, run from sin. The cost is too high. Isn't it interesting that... The lesson we learn from the very first man and woman is to flee from sin, yet it seems to be the greatest struggle that mankind faces today, is fleeing from sin. You know, daily we stand in Adam's shoes, choosing if we're going to do it right or wrong, choosing if we'll sin or walk in righteousness. And Adam and Eve would tell us, run. Capital R, capital U, capital N, exclamation point, run. Because the cost is too high. They understood that. If we talk to them, they were up here today, I believe that's what they would tell us from their entire life. 
sin costs. Let's move on. Second one in the who's the second major character in Genesis? Noah. Thank you, Pastor Bruce. Noah. We've got to flood the world next. Sin's got, sin's got to take full root and destroy the whole thing, and God's got to deal with it. So Noah's the next major character. What do you think that, that Noah would say to us if he was here today? And I'm not sure what he'd look like. He'd be scragglier, I think, than Adam and Eve. You know, I don't know. I always picture him kind of a big robe and a staff in his hand. I don't know why, but that's what I picture him as. What would he say? I think he'd say this today. He'd say, you can live godly in a world of unrighteousness. And it's the opposite of what they, would, what they said. They said sin costs, but he would say the opposite. He'd say the positive side. He'd say you can live godly in a world of unrighteousness. Maybe he learned from the story of Adam and Eve and he lived out a righteous life in the midst of a world gone mad. Grab your Bible. Turn to Genesis where we've been for a year now. If you can't find Genesis by now, we need to talk. Genesis chapter 6. Verses 5 through 8. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But verse 8 in there. It says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It says that God looked on all creation, and he looked around and he saw nothing but sin, and all of a said, But I see a guy who looks different. He said, But Noah was different. He found favor in the eyes of God. He walked in righteousness in the middle of unrighteousness. And friends, I think the most wonderful part of that verse is not that he was just able to walk in righteousness. But it says that he found favor with the Lord. And I want you to understand what it's really saying there. He found favor with the Lord. In other words, he, he blessed God. He made God happy. He found favor. He was favorable in his sight. And God was blessed because of the life of Noah. And here's what I think Noah would want us to know today. He'd say, you know what? You can do that too. He'd say, I found favor in the eyes of God. And it was a blessing to God. And you know what? When you live right in the wrong world... You can make God happy. And you know, I was thinking about this. I know that some of us in this room live in some really tough situations. You have hard family situations. You maybe have a spouse who's not a believer. Some of you go to schools that are full of junk. That's just the reality of the world. Some of you work in places where everybody around you seems like the devil incarnate. I've worked in those places. If you walk with Jesus in the midst of a place where no one walks with Jesus, it may be hard, but I want you to know from Noah that you can walk righteously in an unrighteous world. You can do it, not because of you. You can do it because of the example of Noah and the power of the Holy Spirit within you. You can live an overcoming life. And you know what? What incredible, what incredible um, confidence we can gain from looking at the time in the world where sin was so bad. We say, oh, it's bad today. It, it has to be able to get a lot worse because it was so bad then that God said, I'm going to destroy it all. That was bad. Worse than it is today. And one guy, God looked at and said, that guy's doing it. brought God joy. He found favor in the sight of God. You know what? 
when you live out that place in the, in the family situation that's tough, in that school situation that's tough, in that work situation that's tough, and you overcome, guess what? You don't just overcome, but you also bring joy to God. Isn't that what we want to do? Noah would say, you know what? You can live godly in a world of unrighteousness and be a blessing to God in the process. I'm glad Noah speaks to us today. Because I need that encouragement and so do you. Amen? Who's next? Abraham. All right. You guys wanted to skip Noah earlier. Abraham. What would he say to us? I think, look at, you know, Abraham's a guy that almost the bulk of the time, we spent more time on Abraham preaching through the things of Abraham than almost the entire rest of the book. What would Abraham have to say to us today? I think he would say this. He'd say, friends, have obedient faith. Have obedient faith. The thing that defines Abraham's character is that he had obedient faith. You know, Scripture tells a story how he left his original country, the Ur of Chaldeans, and he got to a land that God would show him. He didn't even know where it was. And then he shows up. When he gets there, God gives him promises. Someday you'll have a son. And finally, after years and years, a hundred years, the promise is fulfilled. He has a son. And then God says something amazing. Abraham, now take that son, your one and only son, take him to the mountain and stab him in the heart and kill him. How would you like that? Look how he responded. Grab your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 22. Because I think how he responded, I think this may be one of the most amazing sections of Scripture in all of the Bible. These three verses in Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. It says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. So for those of you who say that God would never test you, um, take a pen knife out and cut that out of your Bible, okay? Am I joking? Yeah, I am. God tests his people. Now it came about that after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham? And he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on which of the mountains, on one of the mountains which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split wood for the burnt offering and he rose and went to the place of which God had told him. I think that's one of the most amazing scriptures, stories in the entire Bible. Because I want you to know something. Something totally different than probably you and I would be in the habit of doing. Abraham didn't bargain with God. He didn't say, but, 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 but. You promised God. You ever, done, you ever been in that arguing match with God? I have. But God, you don't understand God. It doesn't make sense. Remember, sometimes we're in the process. We're, we're one of the key, we're one of the, one of the players in that play, but we don't know what part we're playing. He's, he didn't do that. He didn't argue with God. He didn't debate with God. He did something amazing. I think, you know, God gives scriptural detail for a reason, and he says this, the one word that amazes me the most. He rose early in the morning. And began to do it. God spoke to him in the evening and he rose early in the morning. Would you be in, a, in an excited hurry to get out of bed? And say, Whoo! The son I've been waiting for forever is now 13 years old. He's the heir to all of everything, the heir that God's going to use to bless the world. I'm going to take him on the mountain and stab him in the heart. I'm excited. He got up early in the morning, he says, and obeyed God's plan. You know, the question is, friends, why do you think he was so willing to get up early and obey God's plan? I think it's for this reason. Because God had proven himself to be faithful time and time again. God had never failed him when he had obeyed. When he disobeyed, he got into trouble. 
But when he obeyed, God had never failed him. Even when he disobeyed, God worked it out. Listen, friends, you can obey God even when it seems difficult because God will never fail you. You know what? It's not, easy. It's not hard to serve God when everything's going easy. It's not hard to serve God when, when everything just works out beautifully. But guess what? It's hard to obey when it's going to cost you something. Let's learn something from Abraham. It was going to cost him something dearly to obey God. And he did it anyways. And when he obeyed, blessings flowed. Listen, friends, you can obey God even when it seems difficult because God will never fail you. Abraham learned that lesson. And we can learn that lesson also. Amen? Amen. We're coming close to the end here. The fourth character. Who's, who's after Abraham? Isaac. You know what? We remember talking about Isaac way back when we took one week looking at him. And we found this. Isaac, that doesn't say much about Isaac in the Scriptures. Matter of fact, he only gets one chapter. But I think if we were to ask Isaac, what one thing would you say to us today? He would say something interesting. He would say this. Be careful. Because your kids do what you do, not what you say. I think if you ask Isaac, one, say one thing about your life. You know what's the unfortunate thing about Isaac in the Scriptures? Now, maybe you're different than me when you think of Isaac. But when I think of Isaac, I think about the one bad example that he gives. He did a lot of good things. But we th- I think about, when I think of Isaac, I think about one bad thing that he did in his life. Grab your Bible. Turn to chapter 26 of Genesis. It's unfortunate when I look back over the, the annals of time, the history of Genesis, and I think of this man, I think of the one time that it's recorded that he really did something bad. He followed his, dad, his dad's bad example. 26 verse 6, it says, then, So Isaac lived in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She's my sister, for he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. And it came about when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say that she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said I might die on account of her. You know what? Isaac did exactly what his father Abraham had done previously in his life. When he got in a tough spot, when he got in a spot where he says, you know what, I'm into a new land and you're beautiful and they might kill me on account of you so they can marry you, he said, say you're my sister, which then caused her all kinds of problems, being taken into the family of another person and possibly, you know, having relations with her. When the tough, when the going got tough, he put his wife at risk to save his own skin. Why don't you think about something? Isaac didn't come up with that idea on his own. Isaac did it because he saw his dad do it one generation earlier. He knew, maybe he didn't see it, he heard of his dad doing it, I should say. He knew his dad had done it. Church, we need to learn from Isaac. Those watching you will be more likely to do what you do than what you say. You know, I believe we all want godly kids. I believe we all want godly grandkids. I believe we all want godly children running around this church that we just influence as a church family. Understand something, modeling right attitudes and behaviors has a lot to do with that happening. Matter of fact, it has more to do with it than what we say. People learn from what we do more than what we say. As a matter of fact, understand this, especially with kids. You can do a hundred things the right way and do one wrong and they glom onto that one wrong thing. Amen, parents? Amen. But you did this. You said that. And that's not bad. 
Maybe it's one of God's ways of making sure we stay right. The fact of the matter is, people generally do what they what somebody does, not what they say. You know, there's an old saying that has a lot of merit to it. One that a lot of times we don't like to say, like to hear, but it says this: "The apple doesn't fall far from the tree." There's a reason that that saying was was begun because it's got a lot of truth to it. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. We've got to make sure that the apples that we're dropping on the ground turn out good because we're good. Amen? Amen. Move on. Number five. Jacob. You know what would Jacob tell us? I think Jacob would tell us something that is, is phenomenally important if we're going to ever become anything for God. Who says, you know what, I want to do something for God in my life? You know what? If you don't care, then don't listen. But if you care, listen. Here's what, here's what I believe Jacob would say. He would say, let God change you into someone better. Let God change you into someone better. When I see Jacob, I see a changed man. From the deceiver, matter of fact, it's one of these great times where God uses the name change to indicate the change. From the deceiver to the one who wrestles with God. From Jacob to Israel. From one who deceived people to one who's identified as one who strives or wrestles with God. Who, his life is, is defined by a relationship of saying, I, I, want, I want God to bless me. Because that's what the wrestling match was all about, if you remember. The wrestling match was with, with this, maybe this pre-incarnate Christ saying, I won't let you go until you bless me. He was now defined from a guy who was a crook to a guy who says, I won't let God go until I get something from God. You know what? God allowed, or Jacob allowed God to mold him through the trials of his life. And that was a choice. We need to get something. That's a choice to allow God to do it. You know, you can be resistant to change in your life. And in pride, you can stay the same. As a matter of fact, guys, a lot of times we say that. I'll never change. And we think it's a good thing. I'm going to tell you, based on this guy's life, that's a bad thing. We're supposed to change. We can be resistant to change and in pride stay the same way or we can admit that we have some growing to do and partner with God in the change. I want you to remember something. Write it down because it will change your life, this statement. Growth requires change. It's not weak to admit that you need to change. It's wise. It's wisdom to admit that you need to change. And so often we think it's weakness because to say I change has to admit that maybe I did something wrong. There's nothing wrong with doing something wrong if you didn't know any better. But when God brings you to a new place, you need to change. If you're exactly as you were five years ago, you probably need to look in the mirror and say, God, how do you want me to change? Growth requires change. It's not weak to admit that you need to change. It's wise. Jacob didn't fight change. He embraced it. And he became a great man of God. Matter of fact, he wrestled for it. He wrestled with God to have the change. Friends, your greatness, not meaning your prideful greatness, the ability for God to do something great through you is linked to your willingness to change and mature in your walk with Christ. You say, what's the limiting factor? Your ability to let God change you. Allow God to bring change into your life. Does it hurt? Of course it hurts. But is the blessing greater? Of course it's greater. Look at Jacob. The blessing was greater. And the last character, Joseph. We asked Joseph, we just looked at him last week, so we're just going to think, what would Joseph say? I think he'd quote the verse we, we looked at last week from Romans. Romans 8.28, he'd say this, you know what? 
we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You know what we find out about Joseph's life? He really believed that. It's what he told his brothers after they had sold him into slavery and discovered who he was years later. Listen to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. It's amazing. It says, You meant evil against me. He's talking to his brothers here who had sold him into slavery. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. He says, you know what? God had a plan in the whole thing. Friends, I don't know what evil someone may have done towards you or what difficulty you may be going through today or what difficulty you may go through tomorrow, but I do know this. God can cause it all to work out for good in your life if you love God and walk according to His ways. And if we'd be like Joseph when we find ourselves in those tough times, God can work it all out. In the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Voices that still speak to us. And here's my hope, my hope and my prayer, that as we have tried to listen to them today and over the past number of months, that what they say changes us and encourages us to become more like Jesus. Because that's God's plan in our interacting with His Word. Amen? Would you stand with me this morning?